Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Joanne Wallace, Professor of International Security at the University of Adelaide, and Ian Kemish, former Australian High Commissioner to Papua New Guinea, join Deputy Head of the National Security College, Nicola Rosenblum, to discuss the future of diplomacy in the Pacific. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the Ngambri and Ngunnawal people the traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Hello and welcome. Joanne and Ian, thank you both for joining me on the National Security Podcast to talk about Australia's diplomacy in the Pacific. Great to be with you, Nicola. My pleasure. It's been an incredibly busy year for diplomacy in the Pacific already with visits to multiple countries by China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi and Australia's newly minted Foreign Minister Penny Wong. And this month we had the Pacific Islands Forum, where among other interesting developments, the United States pledged to scale up its engagement in the region, including through the establishment of new embassies. Ian, why has there been such intense uh, diplomatic interest in the Pacific well, fundamentally, the reason we are interested in the Pacific and should be interested in the Pacific is that it's our primary region of strategic concern. It's our neighbourhood. Uh, we've seen another level of intensity in the course of the last year, um, which I think needs to be seen through a domestic political prism. Uh, our media has engaged in all sorts of interesting ways around the time of the election and given the sometimes shock horror uh, of um, Chinese encroachment or perceived in, in encroachment in the region. So that's given it a new additional twist. But the deeper answer is that it's fundamentally uh, the area where our stability, prosperity and security is anchored. And, uh, and that's why we should be interested as a nation. Ian, you grew up in Papua New Guinea and later you went back and served as Australia's um, High Commissioner in PNG. Um, reflecting on Australia's diplomacy in the Pacific over the last sort of 20 to 30 years, what do you think we've done well? What are our strengths in the Pacific? Yeah, I do remember, albeit through a child's memory, uh, a different Papua New Guinea, which was a territory of Australia. Um, and uh, my life has woven in and out of the place over, over time. So I feel I have a bit of a, an historical perspective on the place. What have we done right? I think we've stayed engaged and we've stayed concerned. When I say we, I really mean the Australian government. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's another point about the need for the rest of the nation, uh, the, for civil society, for media, community to step forward a bit um, uh, along with government in that relationship in my view. But leaving that aside for a moment, as a government – We've stayed engaged. Uh, PNG is still um, uh, understood to be 
uh, a very important relationship. It's one of our largest. Um, we put good people there for, for the most part uh, uh, at the High Commission in Papua New Guinea. And there's a web of relationships which is not to be underestimated. There's this cadre of people. I sometimes call them, a, you know, a sort of a, a, a tribe of Australians. They're often officials, but they're not always, who um, really know the place and understand it. The 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 paradox about the relationship with Papua New Guinea and the way we approach it is that it's also this extraordinary blind spot for the rest of the Australian community, and that's something that needs work. Why do you think it is a blind spot? I think it's partly cultural. If you think back on the last couple of years, um, most Australians would have been able to tell you by watching the media here in Australia that um, what the situation is with COVID, for example, in the UK and the US, less so places like Papua New Guinea, um, not so not so much on our consciousness. So there's we we tend to feel this very strong, many of us, uh, feel, feel this very strong cultural tie to places that are actually quite, quite a long way away. And we forget that, you know, Papua New Guinea, 3.6 kilometres from the nearest Australian post office, um, is really literally on our doorstep. Um, Ian, I was wondering, when I wrote my last book, I did interviews with a number of, you know, government officials on and off the record. And one of the common themes was that, there's a generation, your generation, that um, many were born in Papua New Guinea or lived in Papua New Guinea during Australian colonial period um, that still, as you say, has those close ties and good understanding, but there perhaps isn't the next generation coming through that we haven't been able to sustain that same level of understanding amongst the same kind of wider wider group. Is that your sense that that perhaps there is a need for kind of generational renewal in the Australian linkages to to Papua New Guinea? Yes, it is. Um, I think though that there we're really talking about, um, and it's important to talk about it, the Australian community beyond the body of government officials. I think that we actually have a terrific cadre of people who have worked in PNG, love it, get the relationship within government. Uh, and I don't think there's been any great depletion there at all. Um, uh, and you can extend that to include aid advisors and, 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 and so on. But out there more broadly, yep. I think, I think yes, I think, I think there has been a depletion over time. There's still people who've worked in mining up there and in, in, in other sorts of ventures. So they still exist, but those days pre-independence were different. You know, there was there was an immense number of Australians living and working in Papua New Guinea at the time. So, Ian, staying with you, um, you talked about the the cadre of people who um, have close ties or have interest in the Pacific, and you, you sort of specifically um, singled out Papua New Guinea. Um, diplomacy goes beyond just people, although people is is very important. Would what would you say were sort of examples of successful um, diplomatic initiatives or? or things we've done well in the Pacific or in PNG, if you prefer, given that's your area of sort of more recent experience, you know, are there things that we've done well that we should be pointing to that we're proud of? I think there are things in our um, uh, development approach that can be pointed to with with pride. And I think, look, there's, there's, there's no doubt all sorts of uh, weaknesses in the 
response to COVID in the region, but it's been pretty substantial in the course of the last last couple of years. Um, and uh, there, the Australian government has been engaging with some pretty complicated, ch- challenging issues in many parts of the region, PNG particularly, but but also elsewhere. So I think in the development space, there's actually been some good stuff to to talk to. I actually think I think that the more broadly, and it's important to move beyond the aid program, that uh, where we have um, stepped forward with uh, our engagement in terms of community sporting links, in terms of um, uh, our civil society links, that's been good too, but there needs to be more of it. Thank you. Um, Joanne, turning back to you, You've written extensively about the Pacific, um, including a book entitled Pacific Power, Australia's Strategy in the Pacific Islands. Um, In the book, you say that Australia has found it difficult to effectively influence Pacific Island states in pursuit of its strategic interests. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so in the book, I trace Australia's, the history of Australia's relations in the Pacific between 1975 and when I wrote the book, which is 2017. And I do, I go through different instances in which Australia sought to influence either individual states or, or regional politics. And I do find that over, overall it was a lot more difficult for us than, than an, you know, a broad brush international relations scholar might, might assume given our relative, you know, the relative difference in our, in our power in economic and military and other terms. Um, I think that there's a, and this is something that I'm thinking through now. I, I must admit, I since I wrote that book, and I I used a definition of influence in that book, which is that one state attempts to modify, performs an act that tries to modify the behaviour or the preferences of another state or you know regional body, for example. I've kind of nuanced that in the five years since to think about what influence means actually in practical terms. And I think if, with the benefit of hindsight, I might change the book a little bit with that rethinking because we use the term influence a lot in Australian discussions of the Pacific and, you know, at the moment it's being discussed a lot in the context of China's increasingly visible presence that that, 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 will, that, will, that will buy China, you know, influence over Pacific Island countries. But I think we need to really nuance what influence means in, in practical terms. I mean, is it just a change in behaviour. I mean, and in which case it's very difficult to, to trace causation. And in my book, I tried to trace causation. <laughs> and, you know, in some instances I did, but oftentimes it's it's very difficult to actually trace the causation necessary to demonstrate, you know, influence. And I think what we often miss, and perhaps I admit this, perhaps I didn't think about this enough in my book, is influence is socialisation it's not the, it's not, there's not always a state does act A and tries to, to get state B to, to do something in return. It's actually a long-term relationship building exercise influence. And I think we, I think this, this needs a lot more thinking through in the context of both what we and as Australia and what China and other actors are doing in the Pacific. And I think you know, in my book, I concluded using that um, using a more simplified version of influence. I concluded it was difficult for us, Australia, to influence Pacific Island countries at times because they are sovereign, and you know, we the, the levers of of statecraft that we can pull can't, you know, always, you know, don't always work. But I think now 
thinking it through in the work that I'm doing now, I think it's we're, we're having, we're not, we haven't, and I think this actually picks up on what Ian was saying before about the the knowledge of Australia, the, the, the relationships in Australia with the Pacific. I think we, I don't think, I think we've kind of missed, we've perhaps, all, I don't know if it ever existed or, or, or we've let it lapse if it did, just that um, the broader kind of relation, the, the day-to-day work of relationship building at the very micro level, and this is not just diplomats, because as Ian says, we have a lot of diplomats in the region doing good work, but it's thinking broadly out to churches as, and this is picking up on what Ian said, churches, civil society, educational exchanges, um, you know, business, business, media. I think there's a lot of levers that we have let our, taken our hands off and that we could be, we could be pulling or, or moving more, moving more, more effectively. And in that space, China has, has been more effective in some cases of and I wouldn't say, and look, I can see Ian <laughs> shaking his head, and I'm not in any way, in any way, romanticizing or overstating what China has done. But I think that they have appreciated, they appreciated earlier than we did that socialization is important. So, sorry, this is a long answer, but just to wrap up, I think it's we've had difficulty a because Pacific Island states are sovereign and therefore they have their own independent foreign policies, but b because Perhaps we've viewed influence in too much of a transactional or a, a um, way and not as a longer-term process of socialisation, of building those relationships and building um, positive understandings or positive perceptions of Australia. Mm. Yeah. Look, first to reassure you that the look on my face was just me thinking something through myself. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, there's just so much in what you just said um, Uh and I think thought it was really thoughtful. Um, congratulations too about you know sort of being open about how our thinking evolves on these issues because you know I think it's important to do that. Um, this point of influence I find really interesting. Um, we uh, the first thing I would say uh, is that aid programs, big money does do not buy you influence in in the region. Influence does not come with with uh, big development programs. Influence, in my view, comes with relationship. Sure, you know, a decent-sized aid program is an enormously useful tool uh, in uh, helping develop that relationship. But if you've just got a big aid program and you've got a head of mission and uh, and others who aren't sort of really developing local friendships and, and relationships, you know further forward than anybody else. Um the other thing I find interesting, this, is, this was not at all in what you were saying, Joanne, but, but, but I find this interesting in some dialogue about uh, our approach to the region is that it's very much cast often the d- discussion in hard-headed terms about Australia's interests in the region. And the real truth about this region is that what's good for the region is good for us. Um, there's actually no need to think um, about our interests separately. Um, perhaps there might be in a case or two here or there, but 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 more generally, that's important. So influence, recognition that we're kind of all in it together is is so important. In a way, a corollary of what I was just saying is that one of the things I think we do wrong from time to time is we speak about the region almost as as if it's a 
an empty field in which um, we conduct uh, strategic competition with others. Um, and there was a little bit too much of that in the in the public de- debate around the time of the election, I thought. Um, and it's been wonderfully absent in, in the in the government's approach since the election. It's been much more about friendship, family, uh, relationship. Um, but if we talk about the Pacific only as a strategic theatre, you leave the people of the region saying, well, hang on a second, what about us? And what about the things that are important to us? Joanne, can I turn to you on that point? I mean, what are the kind of common complaints from the region about Australia's approach? Well, just before I answer that, I just want to furiously agree with Ian <laughs> because I think that was very well said, Ian, and reflects, you know, things that myself and others have also been been arguing for a long time. And I think, you know, it's really refreshing. I'm not refreshing because I'm, you've been making this argument in your writing since since you left government, but I think it's really important, the point that you made and, and the point I, I've made this point myself too, that our national interest is is best served by also meeting the priorities and interests of the Pacific. And I think that's a really important point that that that, that to, to to really um to really ram home. Um, look, I mean, I can't speak for the Pacific, but I do speak often to people from the Pacific. So, um, in terms of in terms of, I don't know whether compl- complaints or or might might be a little bit of a pejorative term. Perhaps frustrations might be a more more apt way to describe it. I think there is a you often do sense frustration that. We in Australia aren't, we are listening more, I think. And that, you know, 10 years ago, that was often a complaint that we weren't, that the Australian government um, wasn't wasn't listening to the Pacific, was a, was a more common frustration. But I think we are definitely listening more now. Um, and I think we've seen that even, you know, the last government and this current government has used the rhetoric of partnership, of listening. But I'm not sure whether that listening has always translated to understanding and in, as a consequence of that understanding, the, the kind of policy changes that that many Pacific people would like and governments would like to see. Having said that, I, I'm keeping an open mind on our current government. I think that they've come in with, you know, really positive energy. The reports that I've heard from Suva last week at the Pacific Islands Forum is that that um, Prime Minister Albanese was very seemed very comfortable and um, seemed to 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 really be open to, to, you know, getting to know and, and to relationship building with other Pacific leaders. So I'm keeping an open mind and we knew, we do know that Penny, um, Foreign Minister Penny Wong has made several regional visits. I've heard mixed reports about, about those visits, but they are a positive signal that, that, the, that the government is focused on the Pacific. So, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded as to whether the listening that they're now doing will translate into understanding and therefore action. But if you wanted specific examples, I mean, some work that I've been doing, and, and this is in no way unique to me, it's also been done by a number of other scholars, has been on Pacific frustration about the difficulty of getting into Australia, the difficulty of visiting Australia as a Pacific person. This is across myriad different aspects of our migration program, but even of, even obtaining a visitor visa is very cha- is time-consuming and expensive. I'm organising, I mean, I'm, I do a number of projects funded by the Australian Department of Defence and for those projects, I'm, you know, I organise events and you invite Pacific people to Australia, you know, you have to have quite a long lead time because you have to know, you know, and you have to have their ticket purchased, their insurance purchased. You have to give them a, a, a you know, you have to have a long lead time to make sure that their visa will come through. Their visa fees are very expensive. I mean, if, if 
if I'm inviting someone here from the UK, they can apply immediately. You know, they can apply online for free, and within a set time frame, they will get their their visitor visa to Australia. But it's $150 for someone from the Pacific to apply for a multi-entry visitor visa. I think things like that, when they sit alongside the rhetoric of Pacific family and the Pacific as our home, they do, you know, there is an inherent contradiction there. You know, we don't always want our family to visit, you know, (laughs) but, you know, we do let them visit and we don't make it difficult for them. I know in my own family, sometimes I think, oh, but, you know, you let them come. (laughs) Um, But, you know, sorry, I'm being a little bit facetious there. Of course, I want my Pacific colleagues to visit, but... um, but I think that is a real frustration and that has come out in, in research that I and my, myself and others have done is that, you know, you call us your family but then, you know, you make it so hard for us to visit. So I think revisiting the visitor visa regime, I think revisiting, I think it's really positive that the Albanese government has the policy of permanent migration places reserved for Pacific people. I would encourage them to be a bit more ambitious than 3,000 people a year but it's a start I think that they, the fact that the Albanese government wants to reform and improve some of the issues with the labour mobility schemes is really positive and, you know, there's a lot of potential there for, for those to expand. I think it's a shame that those schemes, and I think it's positive that it's a shame that those schemes in the past were more restrictive than, say, comparable schemes for backpackers, who um, for the backpacker visa. Um, and didn't offer a permanent pathway for migration and didn't offer the opportunity for families to accompany Pacific workers, particularly people who were coming here for four years, which is a very long time to be away from your family. But it's, again, positive that the Albanese government is has undertaken that they want to, to change that and to allow families to come. So I think I think the issue that I think it's great that the Albanese government has this on the agenda, but I would I would say, given the frustrations that do that, that the Pacific people do express that really thinking about how we can open the Pacific up, sorry, open Australia up more to the Pacific is incredibly important. We'll be right back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I might wind back a little bit to something that you both touched on earlier in your your comments about um, the new government. Um, and about this concept of family. Ian, do you think the sort of the way we characterise the Pacific as part of the family is useful? And, I mean, you know, notwithstanding the changes that the new government has made, the previous government did also um, introduce the Pacific Step Up and um, a number of other initiatives and did also really embrace this family formulation. You know, why is there such a bipartisan approach effectively on the importance of the Pacific in Australian politics? 
Well, I think the reason for the bipartisan approach is that, you know, once you're in government and you do a proper assessment of where our interests are, um, it leads you pretty quickly to the region. And uh, I think that that's what's reflected in what is actually quite a common approach across the two major parties. You're right to say that there were significant resources put into the region under the previous government. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that um, there is a fresh tone in the air and things are much more positive in the overall political engagement with the region and, you know, full marks for all of that. But sometimes I think the narrative that, you know, former government bad, current government good um, gets a little bit out of control. Um, the There was, let's face it, an opportunity for a bit of a reset um, uh, uh, following the, the change of government here in Australia, as there was a bit in China, uh, with, in the relationship with China as well. So I think um, we just need to recognise that in a, in a sensible way. Uh, tone is really important and how people feel is really important in the region. And so the signals that are sent on climate change, no matter where you are on the spectrum from denier to, to, to you know, activist, the signals that have been sent on climate are actually terribly important because it goes back to that point we were both discussing, we are all discussing before, which is that showing you care about the issues that matter it to the region is really important. Um, uh, so in that sense, there is a change. This family thing, I think that um, unless as a nation we stump up further and broaden out the relationship beyond official ties, that will start to echo a bit hollow over time. Um, uh, I think it is felt by by people who engage uh, with with the region. But there are many other Australians who aren't in this and don't feel it. And I think that needs to be broadened out. And there's all sorts of ways that a government can do that. I think that it, it involves starting to think about the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade as a coordination point for a genuinely national strategy to the region, which brings in all the organisations and, and, and sectors that Joanne enumerated so well before, plus our education system, everything. Um, I think, uh, by the way, a lot of this applies to Southeast Asia as well. It applies to the, the overall region. But I, I think thinking about our approach to the region as genuinely national is important. Duran, did you want to jump in there on what um, civil society could be doing or how government should be harnessing civil society in this space? Well, again, I'll furiously agree with Ian. <laughs> I, I think that was, it was very, he said it very well. Um, and I agree. I think if the new government wants to formulate a more specific Pacific strategy, it has to not only be outward looking to the Pacific, but also inward looking to Australia. So, you know, just I would reiterate what Ian said, and I would, you know, I think there needs to be an education campaign. Investment in, in Australian media in the Pacific and in Pacific media, but also in Australian media in Australia, doing more, you know, encouraging them to have more stories about the Pacific as part of their everyday news cycle. But I think it'll be the education route that will be the most fruitful. So incorporating in our school curricula the story of, of Australia and of the Pacific. You know, we were the colonial power in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. That is a story that I'm sure most school children aren't aware of. So, in, you know, incorporating that into our school curriculum, at least we'll get generational change in that regard. 
incentivizing universities to run courses focused on the Pacific Islands. I know when I was at the ANU, I was in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre and we had an undergraduate security program and I started a course on Australia and security in the Pacific Islands. And the first year of enrolments, 2013, I had 30 students. That course I handed over to James Batley, who Ian would know well, I assume, and, and, and Sinclair Dinan, and another acad- an academic at ANU. I think last time I spoke to James, he said they had 300 enrolments this year. So if you, it's a, you know, that old adage, if you build it, they will come. And it, but it's very expensive for most universities that aren't as well-funded as ANU to carry small enrolment courses while they gain momentum. And there's a real opportunity there for DFAT or for another, Ian would know better than me, the appropriate um, agency of Australian government to perhaps subsidise or encourage universities to, to get those kind of programs going. I mean, I know at University of Adelaide, I would love to teach an undergraduate Pacific Islands, you know, focused course, but it's, you know, smaller universities with less funding can't carry initial those initial small enrolments to get it going. But the ANU experience really shows that if you do make the investment initially, they will come. And you know, that's 300 students every year coming out of the ANU who have done a course entirely focused on Pacific security. And that's not to mention all the other Pacific focused um, courses being taught at the ANU, but the security program is the one I know best. So program, you know, opportunities like that, they're not big numbers in the scheme of government budgets, but gee, they would make a real difference in, you think about every university in Australia training a few hundred of their social science grads every year in some Pacific focus courses. A couple of years down the track, you've got several thousand people entering government, entering business, who have had at least some exposure to in-depth training about the, the Pacific. Ian, you're nodding furiously. Yeah, well, look, you know, here I am sitting at ANU, and but, but what I would say is that it shouldn't just rest with ANU. ANU has, um, uh, you know, managed to build um, some real capacity in this sense over time. Um, and look, it's got to do with the skill and interest of the people and all, all, all of that. It's also got to do with proximity here in Canberra, um, relationship. Wouldn't it be great to see the big state universities, and I include in this the University of Queensland where I'm, you know, I- involved, uh, engaging more in the Pacific? That university, and I'm sure this is true of others, actually is stepping it up a bit. But I think there's a bit of a revolution required here. <laughs> um, because we've got to think about where Australians live and where they are. Um, not only the, an elite university in the national capital. Thanks. Joanne, uh, earlier this year, you wrote an article with Anna Powell's, um, where you called for um, more Pacific voices in a more nuanced public and private debate. Um, does that sort of feed into these courses or what, what are you meaning by that? When I make those kind of calls, I am meaning for both everyday Australians to be more Pacific literate, but also to be drawing on the Pacific voices that we have in Australia. You know, the Pacific diaspora in Australia is is quite underutilised in, in Pacific policy formulation and Pacific debates. And there is a, a really engaged and energetic diaspora. A couple of months ago, I was invited to speak at the Macquarie University Pacifica Students Association. We did it via Zoom, of course, it's COVID-19 times. But I think there was about 60 or 70 students part of that Zoom. And, you know, of most of whom were from the Pacific diaspora in Australia, and they grilled me. 
no, they're hugely engaged. They've got a lot to say. There's a lot of energy there. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to to bring them in, to take advantage of their knowledge and of their relationships and links into the Pacific too. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that that I, I have been calling for. And of course, always, as I call for more Pacific voices from the Pacific in in Australia. And, you know, I'm really, I'm really fortunate that because of funding I have from the Department of Defence, I've been able to hire two Pacific academics um, at, at University of Adelaide. And we're, you know, we're getting a project started where there will be increasingly Pacific people doing research about the Pacific in their own voices. And I think that there's a lot more space for that and a lot more opportunity for that. And when I advertised for those positions, I was inundated with fabulously well-qualified, you know, emerging Pacific scholars who are looking for these opportunities. And it's really a case of, of having the funding to, to create the roles. But, you know, it's again, it's such a small drop. In the, if you think about the entirety of, Australia, of, of Australian spending on the Pacific, funding some Pacific scholars to have roles here at Australian universities, getting their perspectives and voices out is just a tiny amount, but it could have a really impactful consequence. So, yeah, that would be another wish list item for me. You've talked a lot about um, visas and getting access to Australia and about bringing Pacific voices here. Do we risk creating a brain drain for some of these smaller countries? I think that's definitely a risk and, you know, Pacific leaders have spoken about that and I would always encourage, of course, investment in the Pacific to provide Pacific people opportunities in the Pacific. And, you know, University of the South Pacific is a great example of an institution there where there are important Pacific voices um, working and there, you know, always scope for, for expanding USP. But I think also we could we should be thinking about more, and I think Ian, pick you up on what Ian said, building those institutional relationships too with Australian universities, with universities in the Pacific. So under another, another project that I'm doing um, for defence, we're trying, we're looking at, you know, building those kind of starting to try and build those relationships with some of the, the smaller universities in the Pacific, getting young, you know, students involved in, in doing research and thinking about, well, what, what, do, what are they interested in? What are their priorities? What would they like to tell Australia and the world about their situation and what they want their futures to look like? Ian, where do you see the opportunities for the new Australian government's engagement in the Pacific, what would you like to see the new government focus on? I think we've been talking about it a bit just now. I think I think it does come down to uh, having a genuinely national strategy um, and not just doing even more of what we've been doing. We've been doing a lot of great things and we do need to do more of what we've been doing, um, but in a way, let's set that aside because I think that's the sort of thing that plays to our officials' instincts readily. It plays to our politicians' instincts. Oh, we could do more of this. We could do more in terms of defence links. We could do more of this kind of engagement. Thinking nationally and being quite structured about it uh, is terribly important. The Prime Minister's just floated um, again recently the possibility of Papua New Guinea participating in the National Rugby League here here in Australia and subject to quite a bit of work to make sure that the grassroots is developed and all that kind of thing, that would be a great outcome. Um, but uh, it's not just a matter of having big ideas like that. It's actually being thoughtful and systematic across our society. Yes, we're talking today a lot about what we can do at home, but to me that's quite fundamental to our approach in the region. Now, there's this old saw, if you like, that you know the New Zealanders 
get the Pacific better than we do and they do it better than we do. Their diplomats are no better at the Pacific than, than, than ours are. That's just not true. And, um, we are, you know, heavily engaged, um, uh, with resources in ways the New Zealanders just aren't. There's a, there's a kind of trans Tasman thing in it. But I tell you what the different, the, a real difference is. And that is that New Zealand has a stronger sense of its Pacific identity as a nation than Australia does. And that makes a bit of a difference. Uh, the foreign minister has been um, anchoring the identity for Australia, the new foreign minister, in in a multicultural kind of identity, drawing on her own uh, Malay heritage. I mean, c- can we be of the Indo-Pacific rather than the Pacific? How does that work for us? Well, personally, I think we need to be both. You know, this is a conversation about the Pacific, and um, but a lot of what we're talking about actually applies to some of our our relationships in on the Indo side of the Indo Pacific. Indonesia is a great case in point. A lot of the things we've been saying applies there as well. Um, it's really just about shaking up our sense of who we are at home, and that has evolved. Uh, it just, in my view, needs a bit of extra push. Bringing it back to the more geostrategic level. Um, in the past year, we've seen the Solomon Islands concluding an agreement with China and some Micronesian states moving more away from the the, the so-called Pacific family. Um, I'll start with you, Joanne. Is there something more Australia could or should have done to strengthen regional unity? What's our role in building or strengthening regional unity? Oh, I wish Ian had gone first here. <laughs> um, look, on region, I think... Regional unity is hugely important and there's a it's a delicate balance for Australia because we are, alongside New Zealand, we are the only, you know, non-island member state of the Pacific Islands Forum out of, of many of the other regional agencies. So we do have a unique role. But there is a balance in being a supportive member and veering into being a little bit overbearing. And it means that there's a, li- a fine line we have to walk between supporting and and trying to lead in in situations where it might be best to step back. I think what we've what you know for recent examples of the Micronesian Micronesian Pacific Islands Forum split, you know, we did really important, you know, the really not glamorous but very important work of this logistics, flying people around. You know, we have that capability that that a lot of other Pacific Islands Forum member states don't have. We can get people from A to B and often from quite inaccessible places from A to B. And we did that. And we have been doing that. Just getting people over to do the visits, have the face-to-face conversations that have been missing over the last few years. That logistical support isn't what you would get on see on the on the front page, but it is one of the unique contributions that we can make. And you know that kind of work is really important. But I think, and I, I think we do need to be a bit wary. And we, I've just actually published a piece today, and I published one last week too, and with Anna Poles, um, about the the role that Australia and New Zealand can play as mediating forces, really between the range of external players wanting to become more involved in the Pacific, and and the Pacific Island um, Forum member states. And we can see with the Partners in the Blue Pacific Initiative that was announced in June between Australia, New Zealand, the US, UK and Japan, that's an example of partner states wanting to coordinate their, they say, to coordinate their efforts in the Pacific. But it was very notably done for the Pacific but not with the Pacific. And if you read the announcement 
the readout, it says that there's a focus on forum centrality, but there's no formal mechanism for that partners in the Blue Pacific Initiative to work with the forum as yet. And Australia can play, and, and alongside New Zealand, a role as a mediating a mediating force here that can make sure that the forum and the regional institutions that that across the Pacific aren't being sidelined or subsumed as as other players, as much larger players try to to increase their their presence and role in the region. And we are uniquely placed to do that because we're at the fulcrum. You know, we are an ally, a treaty ally of the US and a very close partner of the UK and Japan, but we are a member of the forum. So I think that there's a real role for us to play there. It's going to be a delicate balance and there's no, it's not going to be easy because, of course, Australia has a lot wider national interests and national security interests beyond the Pacific. We have to manage AUKUS. We have to manage our concerns in the broader Indo-Pacific. And that means that, you know, when we're talking to the US, there's a whole number of balls up in the air that, that we're, we're juggling. But I think that we have a really important role to play in protecting Pacific regionalism from being sidelined or being pushed out of the way as, as some of these partners are seeking to kind of jostle for, for a wider, for a, you know, a more extensive role. Ian, your thoughts? Well, first of all, it's great that you went first, Joanne. I gave me a bit of time to think about it. Um Look, I think in terms of promoting a sense of unity in the region, encouraging a sense of, of unity in the region, we need to take a collegiate approach. Um, we need to not always take the view that it's, that we have to get out our toolbox and fix it. Uh, we actually need to work with other influential parties of the region at moments like this. And you know, Pacific voices can be much more and I mean Pacific Island voices, can be much more influential at moments of te internal tension in the region than our own. Brings in a broader point that sparked a little bit by, by, by what we've just been listening to. I um, uh, There can be this tendency, it's a classic DFAT Australian diplomatic tendency, we have to have our own flag on things, you know, have to have branding of aid programs and all this, this sort of stuff. Actually needs to be less of it. We actually need to um, uh, encourage others to step forward because we're, we're, we always encourage us encourage a situation where we are at the centre of things and the expectation is on us to resolve something or to fix something. There's nothing wrong with working with, indeed, there's a lot right in working with like-minded partners and letting them fly their flags, um, whether it's um, you know extra regional nations or uh, the United States or indeed organisations um, that support themes that we judge are important. I um, represent the Global Partnership for Education in the in the Pacific, and this is. A good example of a body that is supported by Australia, and um, uh, you know the former government and predecessor governments have recognised the importance of working in alignment with bodies like that. It's not always up to us. I think sometimes it's almost a sense of ego that drives our need to be at the the centre and at the front of responses because you know this is our region and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it is. And we do need to be the, a guiding, coordinating force, but it doesn't mean we have to be at the front of the pack every time. I think that's a really interesting thought to leave us on there. Can I thank you both so much for speaking with me today and sharing your insights with our listeners? Joanne, thank you so much for joining us from Adelaide. 
Ian, the National Security College looks forward to supporting uh, the launch of your book, The Console, an insider account from Australia's diplomatic frontline. It's a compelling read about a little-known aspect of Australia's international engagement, uh, a service most of of us don't know that much about until we suddenly find ourselves overseas and in need of help. But thank you also for coming on the podcast today. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.